Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, well, howdy WCC. It's good to see everybody. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews 9 verses 1 to 14. And the title of my sermon is The Tabernacle. So we're going to be looking at the tabernacle. And just as a reminder, I've said, I try to say this just about every week, the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians who were being persecuted. And they were being encouraged and really really pressured to go back to the, the temple, back to the old covenant sacrificial system. And, and he's saying, you shouldn't do that. You've got you to gotta remain faithful to Christ and the new covenant. And last week we looked at the new covenant and we talked about how Jesus, who is our great high priest, is the mediator of the new covenant. And so last week we talked about how the new covenant is just so much better than the old covenant. So today, the writer's going to continue talking about the new covenant. He's going to continue comparing the new covenant with the old covenant. And what he's going to do in Hebrews 9 is take us on a brief tour of the tabernacle, okay? Because that was the place of worship under the old covenant when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, okay? So we're going to be looking at the, the tabernacle, especially the first part of it. So I'm going to break up the sermon this morning. Well, first, we're going to look at Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. And then we'll cover 6 to 10, and then we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 14, all right? So let's start out. Let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 5. It says this, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verse 5, above it, above the Ark, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he says, of these things we cannot now speak. In detail. All right, let's take it verse by verse. Verse 1, he says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Okay, so, so what he's saying is under this first covenant, he's talking about the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He said it had regulations for worship. That's one thing. Regulations, rules, ceremonies, rituals. And it had an earthly place of holiness, an earthly place of worship. Okay, so it's two things. It's regulation and then the place of worship. And the writer is going to take these in reverse order. So he's going to talk about the place first. And he does this a lot. He'll do this in reverse order. It's a chiastic structure. I think Daniel mentioned the chiasm. So he goes through the things and then he reverses the order, okay? He does that almost every time when he's talking in Hebrews. So first he's going to describe the place. And he's going to give us a brief summary of the tabernacle. And I think we have a slide, first slide. And I think we have a slide of the courtyard and the tabernacle. So there you go. So this is an illustration. The tabernacle was just a fancy tent, but it was the tent where God met with his people, as I said, during the days of Moses when they came out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. 
And you can see the tabernacle was surrounded by a courtyard. And the courtyard was 150 feet long. So it was 50 yards long, half a football field. And then it was 75 feet wide or 25 yards wide. So the courtyard was almost exactly at one quarter of a football field. Okay, And the courtyard was surrounded by those white linen curtains. And again, I've talked about this many times. One of the points of the Old Covenant was talk about separation or barriers between the people and God and you can see that so inside the courtyard were just two things there was a a bronze altar where animals are sacrificed and also there was a large bronze wash basin where the where the priests would wash up before going into the tabernacle all right then the tabernacle that's the structure at the end there the tabernacle was this tent it was not a big structure it was just 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall and it was 45 feet long, okay? So 15 yards long, five yards, five yards tall, and five yards wide with a flat roof. And the tabernacle was covered by three layers of coverings. There was, there was a layer of fabric and with blue and purple and red yarns and linens. And then on top of that were two layers of animal skins. So even though they were in the desert, the inside of the tabernacle would have been dark because it was covered by these animal skins and fabric. All right, we well can go on to the next slide. And guys, y'all can cycle through these, these illustrations however you want to do it. So here's a, this is kind of a cutaway of the tabernacle. And I don't know why, but in every one of these, the priests look like Lego men to me. <laughs> I imagine it's hard to light a candle, you know, when your hands look like that, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I couldn't find any illustrations. They all look like Lego men to me. All right, so inside the tabernacle, there was just two rooms. That was it, just two rooms. There was the holy place and the most holy place. And that's what he says in verses 2 and 3. So he's just describing the tent, the tabernacle. And he says in verse 2 and 3, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Okay, As I said, within the tabernacle are these two sections. There was one section that was 15 feet by 30 feet long, the holy place. And this is the section where the priest would enter into every day. And he just briefly describes the holy place. He says there was a lampstand. It was a menorah. So it was seven candles. It was covered with gold. And so you had the menorah and then you had a table. And on it was the bread of the presence. Okay. And one of the things I've tried to say every week was how all this stuff in the Old Covenant was pointing forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So even the lampstand and the bread do this. They point forward to to Christ. The lampstand provides light in this dark tabernacle. Did Jesus ever say anything about being the light? Yeah, he said, I'm the light of the world, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus brings the light of God's truth. He shines the light of God's truth into our into the darkness of the world and the darkness of our hearts. So Jesus is the light. So that lampstand in the tabernacle was meant to point forward to its fulfillment in Christ, being the light of the world. The bread also, there's the bread of the presence. It's also pointed forward to Christ. Did Jesus say, ever say anything about being the bread? Yeah, in fact, I was in Sunday school this morning in one of the classes, and we were talking about how Jesus said that I am the bread of life. So bread was the sustenance of people's lives. That's how you lived. When they talked about bread, that was food, right? So give us this there daily bread. That's talking about how you live. 
So when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, he's the source of spiritual life, salvation. So again, all these things were meant to point forward to Christ, okay? So that was in the tabernacle, in the holy place. Then verse 3 says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. The most holy place, or the holy of holies. So this is the second little section, and it was shaped like a cube. It was 15 feet wide, 15 feet tall, and 15 feet long, like, like a cube. And verses 4 and 5 describe the most holy place, and it says this, having the, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And he says, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So he talks about the golden altar of incense was a symbol of the prayers of God's people. Then he starts talking about the Ark of the Covenant, and that's what we see on this slide. It's a pretty good illustration, I think. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was just a box, and it was covered with gold. And inside the Ark was a golden urn or a golden jar holding manna. And manna was the bread that God miraculously provided the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness. So one of the things they're doing with the manna is remembering God's miracles and his provision for his people. Also in the ark, in the box, was Aaron's staff that budded. This was reminding the people of of how God chose Aaron's family to do the work of priests. That's what happened when Aaron's staff budded. And then finally in the ark was the tablets of the covenant. So the tablets of the covenant were the two stone tablets, and the Ten Commandments were written on those stone tablets. So that was the ark, and it said verse 5, above it, above the ark, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So that's what, these, that's what this is, these, these carvings of these two angels, these cherubim, facing each other with their wings outstretched. And notice it's called the mercy seat. So the picture was this above the wings of the cherubim was pictured where God symbolically would meet with his people, and this is the mercy seat, so he would give them mercy. So this symbolized God's presence, as I said, above the wings of the cherubim. So that's the Ark of the Covenant, and at the end of verse 5, the writer says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So the writer doesn't want to go into a lot of detail because these Jewish Christians already would have been very familiar with the tabernacle. All right, that's, I think that's all we need for the slides. Thank you, guys. And now he, 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 uh, he starts in verses 6 to 10. He's going to describe the regulations or the ceremonies. So he's talked about the place of worship. Now he's going to describe the ceremonies. Actually, guys, if you could go back to the second slide, he's going to describe the priest's work. And I'll, I'll just read Hebrews 9, 6, and 7. Yeah. It says, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So in the first section of the tabernacle, the priest would go in there every day performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest would go in there, and he would only go in there once a year. He would only go in there on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would take blood from the sacrificial animal, the Passover lamb, and this, this, this animal would be offered for the sins of the people. That's what it says. Also notice this. It said the high priest would have to offer a sacrifice for himself. So the high priest was a sinner. He, needed, he himself needed his sins forgiven. 
So he had to make an animal sacrifice for himself. And of course, this is totally different from Jesus, our high priest, who is without sin. He doesn't have to atone for his sins because he has no sins. Okay? So in the Old Covenant sacrificial system, the picture is this. The sins of God's people were symbolically transferred to the animal. And then the animal was killed. And the picture was that the sins of God's people were transferred to the animal. And then the animal received the judgment, the judgment of God symbolically, instead of it going to the people. And of course, this is what Jesus did for us when he laid down his own life for us. On the cross, Jesus took his, our sins upon himself. And then he took the judgment of God upon himself. So now there's no condemnation, there's no judgment hanging over God's people because it's all been laid on Christ. All right, let's read Hebrews 9, look at verses 8 to 10. Hebrews 9, verses 8 to 10. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The writer's saying this. It's kind of a complicated statement here. But the writer's saying this, that in the Old Covenant, notice he says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates... He's saying the Holy Spirit is teaching us something here in the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit is teaching us something. He's indicating something. With the tabernacle, the animal sacrifices, everything, the Holy Spirit's teaching us something. And I think he's teaching us at least two things about the Old Covenant that he talks about here. One is limited access. I'll talk about that, limited access. And the second one is limited cleansing. Okay, limited access and limited cleansing. Limited access, number one, what do I mean by that? Limited access to God. Verses 8 and 9 say the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, the true holy places, heaven, is not yet opened as long as the first section, he's talking about the tabernacle, is still standing or the temple is still standing. He says, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's saying at, at the time this was written, the animal sacrifices were still going on in Jerusalem. So he's saying as, as long as the old covenant was still in place, as long as the tabernacle or the temple was still standing and these sacrifices were going on, that shows that true access to God, intimate access to God, was not available. So under the old covenant, access to God was very limited. So while, as I said, while this, was, while this book was written, the sacrifices were still going on. He's saying this is symbolic for the present age. And so he's saying that true access into the true presence of God in heaven was not available because Christ hadn't made it available. He's saying while the old covenant tabernacle, all that's going on, okay? So the word, when he says symbolic, he says it's symbolic for the present age. That word symbol or symbolic is where we get the word parable. So what he's saying is the old covenant system is a symbol or a parable of spiritual realities. So that temple, tabernacle, sacrificial system, all of that was a symbol. It was a parable, an object lesson that was pointing to deeper realities fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that's what the old covenant was. It was a symbol. It was an object lesson. And the writer's saying as long as the old covenant was in place, 
That's a symbol, a parable, showing that there was limited access to God. Remember, there were all these barriers back then between us and God. So it was saying that there was true, that true access to God was not available. So that's what he means when he says the Holy Spirit was indicating that the way into the true holy places was not yet opened. The true holy places in heaven, God's throne room in heaven, the way to God's true presence, this was not yet open, wasn't available. So again, remember the high priest could only go in there. He was the only one and he could only go in there once a year. Only the regular priest could ever even go in the t- tabernacle and they could just do there like once a week. I mean, I mean one week out of their whole lives. That's what the priest could do. And then for all the other people in the Old Covenant, they never went into the tabernacle, ever. They'd never go in there. So there were all these barriers. So the Holy Spirit was showing that under the Old Covenant, this was a parable showing that there was very limited access to God. Okay, so that's number one, limited access to God. Number two is this, limited cleansing. And what I mean by that, limited cleansing of the conscience, limited cleansing of the heart and mind. Verses 9 and 10, he says, according to this arrangement, he's talking about the Old Covenant, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the writer's saying that this Old Covenant sacrificial system could not, he says, perfect, that's the word he uses, perfect the conscience of the worshiper. We've talked about this word before, this word perfect. It's based on the word telos, meaning goal or purpose or endpoint. And the writer to the Hebrews loves using this word perfect. In fact, I would encourage you to get an interlinear Bible online and start digging around and look how often, see how often the writer of the Hebrews uses this word perfect. It's from, the, as I said, from the word telos, okay? It's a great study because what the writer's doing, he's repeatedly showing us that the old covenant could not achieve the telos. It couldn't achieve the goal that God wants to accomplish in our lives. And in this case, he's saying the old covenant could not achieve the telos, the goal, or the purpose of cleansing the conscience, clearing the conscience, in fact, the NIV says the sacrifices under the Old Covenant could not clear the conscience of the worshiper, and that's good. So the Old Covenant could not achieve the telos, the goal of cleansing the heart and mind, cleansing the conscience. Because, we've talked about this as well, the Old Covenant focused on externals, not on the interior, not on the heart and mind. Now, this wasn't bad. God had a purpose in, in the externals. Again, they were pointing forward to Christ. But the Old Covenant pretty much focused on externals. And that's what you see in verse 10. He says, The gifts and sacrifices deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. This is external stuff. Pastor Daniel has done a great job leading us through through Leviticus. And Leviticus and Hebrews match up so well together. So Leviticus focuses on the Old Covenant, on the externals, animal sacrifices, dietary laws, all that. And Daniel has been showing us that those external regulations point to deeper realities, deeper spiritual realities, like the holiness of God. Like how God's people are to be separate from the world, right? And how we're to approach the Lord with reverence and honor. So those are things that we see from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant wasn't bad. It had a purpose designed by God. But its focus was primarily on the externals. 
So all those externals were meant to point to deeper realities, deeper realities fulfilled in Christ. And I'll just say this, that in our world today, our world and our culture does not want you thinking about deeper realities. Our world wants you to think about just all the things you see, material, money, pleasure, all the things in our world. It does not want you for your mind to go to deeper spiritual realities. But that's what the new covenant does. It, it's, it shows that all that stuff in the old covenant was pointing to spiritual, deeper, deeper realities fulfilled in Christ. So the old covenant, the old covenant in and of itself could not bring about cleansing from within. It couldn't cleanse the conscience because it was focused on externals. Notice this too, look at the end of verse 10. It says the old covenant was to be in place, it says, until the time of reformation. Till the time of Reformation. Reformation, that, here's another Greek word. Reformation, that actually means to make straight, to straighten out, to get right. Did your mom ever say, straighten up, right? Straight, straighten up and fly right, right? Straighten up. That's what Reformation means, to straighten up, to set things right, to get right with God, to straighten things out with God. So what we see here is the Old Covenant did not straighten things out completely when it came to man's relationship with God. Only the new covenant could bring about reformation. Only the new covenant could reform our relationship with God. Only the new covenant could straighten things out, make things right with God, because only the new covenant could clear the conscience. Only the new covenant could bring about true forgiveness. The old covenant couldn't do it. So the old covenant was only meant to be in place until the time of reformation, which is the coming of Christ, because he's the only one who can make things straight between God and his people. Jesus is the only one who can do that, and that only happens in the new covenant. So it couldn't happen in the old covenant because the old covenant, as I said, was based on externals. Those animal sacrifices could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, and this is the this is the thing I want us to rejoice in. If you put your faith in Jesus and you're, you're in this new covenant, think about the fact that the people of Israel could never be sure, really, that their sins were forgiven. In the old covenant, the conscience of the worshiper was not freed from the feelings of guilt. So there was a limited cleansing of the conscience. Again, the Holy Spirit is teaching us something with all this, teaching us something with the tabernacle and animal sacrifices. So again, he's teaching that under the old covenant, there was limited access to God and there was limited cleansing of the conscience. Or verse 11, the writer starts to make a transition here in verse 11. He starts talking about the new covenant, which Jesus brings. So let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, when Christ appeared, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So this is the reformation that the new covenant brings about. When Jesus appears as our high priest, he straightens it all out. He gets us right with God. The writer says, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he says, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's talking about the throne room of God in heaven, the perfect tent in heaven, not the tabernacle on earth. So after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he appeared in the true throne room of God in heaven, the true heavenly tabernacle. 
That's what he's talking about here. And it says that Jesus did this once for all. Jesus did this once for all. This is huge. Jesus did it one time. The old covenant animal sacrifices were performed day after day after day. Even after the day of atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would do all that, and and the people of Israel would have some sense of forgiveness, right? It was a day of rejoicing. But what happened the next day? Started all over again. Killed some more animals. They did this day after day. The slaughter of animals continued. So this shows that that forgiveness offered under the old covenant was limited and the, the, the cleansing of the conscience was limited. But when Jesus entered into the true tabernacle in heaven, he did it once. He did it once and it was all over. It was finished. In the old covenant, all those millions of animals killed, all those millions and millions of animals killed, they could not bring about forgiveness for even one sin. And yet when Jesus laid his life down, when he went to the cross, he died once and he took care of all the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. He did it once. And he says it was for all. That's what it says right here, once for all. It was for all of God's people. It wasn't just for the privileged few. As our great high priest, Jesus offered his own life, his own blood for us. And look at the result. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemption is buying, purchasing. Jesus laid down his life to purchase you, Christian. That means he owns you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20, 19 and 20 says this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. What does the Heidelberg Catechism say? What is your only comfort in life and in death? What's your only comfort? My only comfort is that I belong Body and soul, life and death, not to myself. I don't belong to myself. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He owns us. This is redemption. Jesus has purchased us. In, in fact, in our reading today, in, in our uh, assurance of pardon, it was from Isaiah 43. And it says, thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And he says, I've called you by name. You are mine. So God says, you are mine. You belong to me, Jesus bought us. He redeemed us. And notice it's not a temporary redemption. Look at verse 12. It's not a temporary redemption. What kind of redemption is it? It's an eternal redemption. It's eternal from the Greek word eon, without end, throughout the ages, everlasting. Jesus' love and redemption, the fact that we belong to him, it's eternal. It goes on for ages and ages. It goes on for eternity. Also, it says securing, securing an eternal redemption. Our redemption, our salvation is secure. Our redemption is completely and eternally secure in Christ. This, think about this. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, your salvation is secure forever. And it will never be more secure than it is right now. It can't be any more secure. Even when you're in heaven, even when you're on the new earth and resurrected glorified bodies, then, even then, your salvation will not be secure, more secure then than it is right now. It can't get any more secure than it is right now. All right, verses 13 and 14. This is the last thing we'll look at. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, 
For the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is a complicated sentence, but the bottom line is this. What the writer is saying is, the blood of bulls and goats provided an external cleansing, right? The, The animal sacrifices brought about some sort of ceremonial purification and outward cleansing, through this process, ceremonies. So he's saying, if the blood of animals brought about external cleansing, how much more? He's making a how much more argument. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our hearts and minds, purify our conscience? So he's saying the blood of animals provided this external ceremonial cleansing. But he's saying, but Jesus' death brings about the cleansing of our hearts, the cleansing of our conscience. So he's saying, again, the writer's saying that all this old covenant stuff was good as a parable, an object lesson about purification, but it could not bring about true cleansing of the conscience. So this is how much better Jesus' sacrifice is. Because as it said, Jesus offered himself, offered himself without blemish to God. And the result is, in the new covenant, in Christ, this brings about a purified conscience. So through our relationship with Jesus, we can understand, we can truly understand that we're completely forgiven. And then the writer says, this frees us from dead works to serve the living God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we're not doing works that lead to death anymore. We're freed up to serve the living God. Also, just as a brief thing, notice the Trinitarian aspect of this. Look at verse 14. I preached on the Trinity a while back. Look at verse 14. It talks about the blood of Christ. Christ, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, says through the eternal spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, so Jesus working through the ministry of the Holy Spirit offers himself without blemish to whom? God the Father. The Father. So the first person of the Trinity. So you've got the subtle teaching of the Trinity right here in Hebrews 9, 14. You see the triune God, the three persons of the Godhead are all involved in our salvation. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right, here's the bottom line of all this. All this old covenant stuff, priesthood, animal sacrifices, all that, things like the lampstand, the bread, the tabernacle, all of it was a symbol, parable, an object lesson. All of it was pointing forward to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because again, the old covenant could not bring about complete forgiveness. It could not clear the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Covenant people did not have true assurance that their sins were forgiven because those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, were repeated day after day. And again, also, they had limited access to God. So there were all these barriers between God and the people. So all, the, all these Old Covenant symbols, parables, they were pointing forward to Christ where we have complete forgiveness of sin. We have true cleansing of the conscience, cleansing of our hearts and minds. And we have closeness with God. We have intimate access to God, the Father, through our relationship with Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And as a result, as he says, we're freed up to serve the living God. And all this is because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice. So he's not only the priest, he's the sacrifice. All right, that's the passage. I want to go back and look look at something I skimmed over. Look back at verse 7. Look at verse 7 at the end of the verse. It says, the high priest offers blood, and it says, for the unintentional sins of the people. 
the unintentional sins of the people. In the old covenant, you could offer a sacrifice, you could offer an animal sacrifice, but only for unintentional sins. You could offer a sacrifice, but only for sins committed in ignorance. If you sinned against God, but you didn't know it was a sin, then you could bring an animal sacrifice. What about intentional sins? What about intentional sins? This is a scary thing. In the old covenant, there was no sacrifice that you could offer for intentional sins. For willful sins, you could try to make restitution, right? You could try to make restitution, but there was no sacrifice that you could bring for intentional sins. You see how scary this was? What would you do if you committed a willful sin but you wanted forgiveness? Think about David with Bathsheba and David killing Uriah the Hittite, her husband. David's sin was willful. It was intentional. It was premeditated. But the old covenant did not have a sacrifice that you could offer for those sins. There was nothing David could do ceremonially to receive forgiveness. And this caused a huge problem for the people of God in the old covenant. So this is an example of how the old covenant did not have a way to cleanse the conscience. Because can you imagine the horror of this? All of us have sins that we've struggled with over and over again. All of us have committed sins willfully. Imagine having no way to get right with God after committing those sins. You can see why the conscience of the Old Testament believer was never fully cleansed. It would be horrible. What could you do? What could you do? Well, you'd have to do what David did in like in Psalm 51. You have to cry out for mercy because there was no sacrifice that could be offered. That's why David says in Psalm 51, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He says, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So David knows that there's no sacrifice he can offer. So he throws himself on the mercy of God. At the beginning of Psalm 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So David pleads the mercy and love of God because there was no sacrifice for intentional sins. That's also why David says in Psalm 51, 17, he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He says a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So even in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit was teaching David that his true hope was not in animal sacrifices. His only hope was a merciful and loving God. And the way you get to this merciful and loving God was through repentance, through a broken and contrite heart. This is the way to God. This is faith. This is repentance. This is brokenness over sin. But again, in the Old Covenant, you could never really know if your sins were forgiven, like on a heart level. And that's why the new covenant is so much better because we can have assurance of forgiveness of sins, even intentional and willful sins because in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. He's paid it once and for all. I want to wrap up with this. Look back in Hebrews 8. Look back at Hebrews chapter 8. Look at verse 12. I touched on this briefly last week, but I really want to hit on it to finish up this morning. Hebrews 8, verse 12, this is from Jeremiah's prophecy about the new covenant. And God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God says, I will remember their sins no more. Christian, because of what Jesus has done, you can have a clean conscience. Because as God says, he says, I will remember your sins no more. Again, I did not plan this, but in today's corporate worship in Isaiah 43, 
God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for, your own, for my own sake. And he says, and I will not remember your sins. That's Isaiah 43. So here's the amazing thing about this promise. When God says, I will remember your sins no more. God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows every location of every electron, of every molecule in the universe at every point in time, right? He knows every thought going on right now throughout the world. I was driving down I-20 the other day, and I was thinking, God knows every thought on all these people driving all the time. He knows it all. He knows everything. He do, and he doesn't forget anything, right? I want, you, I want you to think about this. Forgetting is a passive thing. When we forget something, we're passive in that, right? We don't control our memory. When we forget something, it's passive. It just happens, and we don't even realize it's happening. Forgetting is something we don't control. Over time, our memory fades because we're human. But with God, it's different. God can't forget something. God doesn't grow old, and his memory doesn't fade. God doesn't gain knowledge. He doesn't gain any knowledge. He doesn't lose knowledge. So God can't forget. He can't forget something he done, he's, that we've done. But he does promise right here in Hebrews 8, 12, to remember our sins no more. I'm going to ask you to do something. And it's going to require some work. I'm almost done. It's going to require some effort on your part. I'm going to ask you to think of something that you've done that you're ashamed of. A sin you've committed that you're ashamed of. And I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit right now to bring that to mind. Some sin you're ashamed of. So see yourself committing this sin or saying it or thinking it or whatever. See yourself doing this. You got it? Now, you go to God in faith and repentance and you confess it. You ask him to forgive this sin. He forgives because of what Jesus has done. But I still want you to hold that in your mind's eye, okay? Then you read right here in Hebrews 8, 12, where God says, I will remember their sins no more. So you're thinking about this thing that you're ashamed of. You've already confessed it. God's forgiven you, but you can't forget it. And you say, God, I'm so ashamed of what I've done. You know what God says? He says, I don't remember that. I don't remember that. And you say, well, you know, Lord, this thing I did or this thing I thought or said, I'm so ashamed. And God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't remember that. And you say, but God, I did this horrible thing I can't get over. And God says, I don't know what you're talking about. It's been forgiven. It's been covered by the blood of my son. The father says, Jesus has paid for that. He's atoned for that. And therefore, in my book, it didn't happen. It didn't even happen. It's gone. I don't remember it. I've chosen not to remember that sin. And you say, Lord, I can't forgive myself. You know what God says? Well, it doesn't matter to me if you can forgive yourself or not. Because your forgiveness doesn't matter. My forgiveness is what matters. And the fact is, God says, I've forgiven you because of my son. I don't even know what you're talking about. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that under the new covenant... Because of Jesus' once and for all work that he's done for us in laying down his own life, God remembers our sins no more. Our gracious God loves us so much that he not only forgives all our sins, he chooses not to remember them. The omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe loves us so much that he chooses not to remember our sins Our father is saying, those sins are forgiven. I don't remember them. 
He's saying, by the way, I love you. It's all because of Jesus, right? So rejoice in that believer. Rejoice in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do praise you that you don't remember our sins. God, help us just to to rejoice in that and think about it. Help us to, to truly meditate. Jesus, help us to meditate on the fact that because of what you've done, our sins are forgiven. They're atoned for and you don't even remember them. So help us to rejoice in that, Lord. And Lord, help us also to understand that this free, amazing grace doesn't make us want to sin against you. It does the exact opposite. Because you're so gracious. Now we want to lay down our lives for you because of your love for us. It doesn't make us want to take advantage of your love and grace and do something terrible. It makes us want to live for you, to die to self. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for for the new covenant in you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being our great high priest who makes intercession for us all the time. You pray for us. You weed out our prayers. You love us, Father. Thank you for sending your Son. Holy Spirit, thank you for dwelling within us. Thank you, triune God, that, that you are, you've, you've brought us to yourself through Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Help us to rejoice in this fact and help us to really understand that your grace, your love, you're not remembering our sins. Help us to, to, to take that and to really allow it to fuel growth in holiness, growth in love for you and growth and love for other people. So help us in that, Lord, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.